as things shift in the market, people's priorities change. So you need to really be thinking about, is their pain still the same? The board's now gonna be asking for efficiency, I can guarantee it. So does the message that you were rolling out three months ago still resonating with this audience today? What do you need to change? The B2B Marketing Exchange brings together B2B marketing and sales practitioners from across the country to get the latest tools and tips they need to succeed. Now, we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. I'm Claudia Tarico, And I'm Kelly Lindenow. And this is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the B2BMX podcast. We are currently working to secure some exclusive interviews with some of our 2023 B2BMX speakers. So in the meantime, we're kicking it back to the 2022 B2B Sales and Marketing Exchange in Boston with the replay from Lisa Sharapata, who works at Boost Up AI. Yeah, the session was titled Move Over Growth at All Costs, Enter the Era of Growth Efficiency. And Lisa really made a case for why revenue leaders need to change their go-to-market approach among all of the changing buyer behaviors that we experience daily. In this session, Lisa will cover the seven pillars you need to build a repeatable, scalable, and efficient go-to-market strategy that will help future-proof your business. So without further ado, let's roll that tape in three, two, one. One. Thank you. All right. Well, I have already cut out like 15 slides and I know I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to jump right in and hopefully not repeat myself in saying this is very surface level and I'd love to go deeper into any of this content if anyone has questions later. So just be aware I'm like scratching the surface on these topics here. Um, so first, I'll just give you a little background about myself and why I'm talking about this and interested in this topic. And I actually, I have notes here because some of these numbers just blow my mind and I don't want to get them wrong. But I was at a company called Teradata back in 2015 or so, and they had acquired a whole bunch of technology companies and they were trying to build out a marketing applications business unit. Um, which is a whole nother can of worms. But they bought a company called the Primo for $525 million back in 2010. So like, that'd be like a trillion dollars now or something. Um, and then in 2016, they sold it for $90 million. So they took a loss of $435 million after six years. And... I was a part of the acquisition into private equity and got spun out of Teradata. And so that was a very eye-opening point in my career when I just was baffled by these numbers and trying to figure out what on earth is going on you know, in this universe that I'm now in. And not only that, but I went from a publicly traded company to a privately held company and then after that, I proceeded to go to Sixth Sense, which was high growth. At the time, we were Series B, we got our C. Then I went to Mind Tickle, super high growth. We were Series D, or C when I got there, we got our D and E. We got $200 million in nine months. And then I went to a Series A company, Boost Up. We got our B. And again, all of these are playing in this triple, triple, double, double, double growth 
model um, with venture capitalists back. So I spent some time really doing some research here, talking to VCs, talking to CEOs over the years, and kind of living in this world um, because I could see that you know B2B was just a whole different animal. And if you weren't growing at a higher pace than most standard companies, you weren't gonna make it. So I came up with this framework and I, I did it for myself because I like to bucket things and group them into things that have structure and it just helps me to think about how I can make an impact and change things. So I came up with this perfect framework um, and it covers people, enablement, reporting, fit, experiences, channel, and tech. And I'm sure there's a bunch of missing stuff too and there's probably an easier way to do this, but it's perfect. So <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at that. So first, to set the stage, I think it's important to have a baseline of what does growth at all costs look like. And within these categories, these are the things that I've seen, and again, this is scratching the surface. With people, it's hiring. Higher, 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 the more the better. We want more sales, hire more salespeople. We want more demand gen, hire more demand gen people, et cetera, et cetera. Enablement, and I worked at a sales enablement company, and I can tell you even there, it was about speed to ramp and doing all the things I call the ings. Selling, calling, marketing, you know, getting out there fast. It wasn't so much about really making sure people were enabled. Reporting, I mean, still today, it's how many leads have you got this week? You know, just very basic pipeline quotas, quarterly goals. Fit, I laugh. I mean, there's product market fit, and then there's your, your ideal customer profile, and there's other fits to consider, but... I, I just see it as like this mindset of anyone who will buy your product is your fit. Um, and I've seen that play out in a lot of scenarios where you say you've got this criteria, but then such and such account comes in and, well, they're a marquee account and you're going to bend all the rules and, you know, do a, a free product, um, you know, whatever, you know, like anything to get them, right? And then channels, so, oh, I skipped experiences. So this is actually the one I'm the most passionate about as experiences, but I think because of the speed and the, I guess, importance being put on growth, what I've seen is just a lot of silos in go-to-market strategy and not really thinking about the entire experience that a customer is facing across your entire life cycle. And I think this is one of the biggest ones. Channels, again, just throwing money at problems, really. Oh, this is working, put more money in it. Or this isn't working, like PPC, we just need to spend more. We need to outbid everybody. And then tech, which I think is fairly obvious. So I'm just going to drive right into people and I'll say I took out a probably five or six slides on this one alone and I'm skipping over the whole hiring part um, to really dig into this retention part. And you've probably heard the phrase retention is the new acquisition, 
But I think everyone thought of that as being your customers. And I think this is just important when it comes to your employees. And especially when you're trying to grow, you need to retain your best employees. And there's a few things I've seen really impact this. And I did add one bullet point at the top. It does start with the hiring experience. I liken this a lot to your demand gen. You've got to have a great brand. You want to reduce as much friction as possible. You need to meet people where they're at and move things along quickly. But then also thinking about once you get them in, you know, how are you onboarding them? And then really what are the benefits? Like how many times have you seen, oh, unlimited vacation now? Like I feel like every B2B tech company has that listed on their website. But in reality, you know, your first month in, it's like, well, just so you know, the CEO never takes any time off and he works all weekend. So if you want to take some time off, it's okay, but we don't practice what we preach at the top. And so I think there's some culture things like that that really companies need to look at. And I, I know you're not going to probably change the CEO's behavior, but you can change yours and you can start thinking about your team and the precedent you're setting um, are there people on your team that you should just say, hey, look, you're like, I'm worried you're going to burn out. Why don't you just take a few days? Um, and same thing with just, hey, you've got little kids. You know, if you need to take them to daycare in the morning, it's okay if you start late. Like, we can start this team meeting at this time. Or just being really mindful. People appreciate that, and it goes a long way. But then I'm also hearing about some really creative ideas, like paid extended business trips. So if you are traveling for business, hey, do you want to stay an extra day and check out Napa? Something like that. You know, we'll pay for it. I mean, those little perks go a long way, and especially how much effort it takes to get on an airplane these days. You can make the most of it. So just look at how can you be creative within your own culture, your own team, and just do a little bit here and there that makes a difference for people. And transparency, recognition, I think these are things that people are getting better at, but one of the things that I've really been thinking a lot about is whether you're hybrid, whether you're going back to in-person, our companies are really cloud-based now for the most part. And especially if you're global or in any different time zones, how are you going to create a culture that works in the cloud? So really start thinking about some things that you can put in place knowing that no matter what model you go back to, you're going to be a cloud-based company. And the last thing I'll talk about is helping people grow. And I actually have an example here because I get asked questions about this a lot. It's, it's harder than it sounds, right? When you're going 100 miles a minute and everybody's expected to hit these crazy numbers, how do you do that? And I really try to find the dissection between what are the company's goals? What do I know is going to create a really good marketing program and what is this person good at and what are they passionate about and where is their opportunity so an example at my last company I came in and there was an employee there that he'd been doing pretty much everything and he stood up this master class series the website social all these different things but I could tell what he was the most passionate about was these webinars that he was doing because he really liked talking to people and bringing them in and asking them to be a part of it. And that just 
got him fired up. When he was talking about that stuff, I could tell he was in it. So I was looking at this, I'm like, these webinars are one-off things. We're not really creating an audience. There's so much more we can do with this content. Let's turn this into a masterclass series and also like look at how we can start building a community out of this. So I approached him as we were growing and saying, you're gonna have to take some things off your plate. Here's what I, you know, handed off to new people, right? We're hiring. This is what I see you really passionate about. And I think this is gonna make the biggest impact in the business. You know, what do you think about doing this? And then he was, you know, I could tell, like lit up, super excited. And it was a huge growth opportunity, right? And it allowed me to retain him because I knew he was at risk of leaving with someone coming in over and his job getting broken into small pieces. And it allowed him to grow and be like really excited about what he was doing. So, and we got really great results from the program. So just think about things and how can you be creative and, and put it all together. And these are probably pretty obvious stats, but I'll just say this too is, if you don't know where someone stands, how they're feeling, what the vibe is on your team, the culture, if it's hard for you to figure that out remotely, do a survey, ask questions, like make sure you find out. Get some sort of a benchmark so that you know where you're at today because there's gonna be a lot of good uh, talent on the market. And that's gonna also open up opportunities for other people and I think that it's gonna get even more cutthroat. So pay attention. And then I talked a little bit about this, but this enablement piece is really critical. And what I've seen the most is this, again, this idea of the ings and ramp time and getting people doing things versus really spending the time to think about what are the most critical skills and information that they need to help us hit our business objection? And are we taking the time to properly train them and are we continually training them? So thinking about things like when a new product uh, feature comes out, is it a note in Slack and everyone's supposed to just watch some two minute clip and understand how that's gonna change the game? Or are you really training each team to understand here's what we're doing with the product, here's how we're advancing it and, and understand those things? Same thing with the competition, I mean, everybody's evolving really quickly. How often are you going back and looking at, oh, our biggest competitors had a new product launch. Are we taking the time to really absorb what that means in the market and how that would impact our sales pitch, our marketing efforts? And then same thing with what buyers care about and again, what's happening in the market. So as things shift in the market, people's priorities change. So you need to really be thinking about, is their pain still the same? The board's now gonna be asking for efficiency, I can guarantee it. So does the message that you were rolling out three months ago re still resonating with the, this audience today? What do you need to change? And then I use this example of the 80-20 rule where like objection handling is one of those big things that companies latch onto as an idea that it's really important that all of our reps know how to objection handle. But I feel like they throw that phrase around very loosely and don't really think about what this means. And they know that the best sellers on their team are good at objection handling, but then they're like, okay, well we need to enable everyone to be really good at 
handling objections. But I mean, this bulleted list under here is just the tip of the iceberg on the things that really go into objection handling. And it's really deep in it, back to my previous list, it's like it's an ongoing process of understanding what your competition's doing, how does your problem or your product solve their problems, this new feature came out. Now we have this, we can use this to handle this objection. We built this new thing because all of our customers were saying there was a gap in our product and we needed it. Like, is, are you taking the time to really learn and understand the impact of the things that your company and product are doing and what's happening in the market and for everyone to absorb that and learn how to then use that in their marketing sales or even customer success, like retaining accounts, um, same thing. If, if they were complaining about something that's wrong with the product, are you going back now and saying, hey, we have this. Hey marketers, you've heard us talking all about it and now it's finally happening. The B2B Marketing Exchange is coming back to Scottsdale in 2023 and we want to see you there in person. If you're a fan of the B2B conversations we share on the B2B MX podcast, this event is literally made for you. Get a front row seat at sessions that will challenge everything you know about marketing, sales, ABM, go-to-market strategy, and so much more. Plus, you'll get a chance to mingle and network with the best of the best in B2B. As a B2B MX podcast listener, you'll get 25% off your ticket by using the code PODCAST25 at registration. Check out the show notes for more information or head to b2bmarketing.exchange to register now. So getting into reporting, I have to say, I mean, I was an art major, so the math part, and I, and I actually had a minor. I started off with architecture. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and then I was like, oh, there's way too much math in this architecture. So when I start getting into reporting stuff, I'm like, oh, what are they talking about? So maybe everybody else understands this, but it took me a while to understand, like, what is NRR and why is it so much more important than these other numbers? And the aha moment for me was that it doesn't account for churn. ARR doesn't account for churn. NRR is accounting for churn. So I'll get into, again, this whole experience piece and looking at the entire life cycle of the customer. But this is where your sustainable growth comes in. This is the most critical piece. And that growth at all costs model, I think, was leaving out the component of really thinking about how do we keep these customers on board? How do we keep them expanding and growing with us? And that is the like major mental shift that is happening that everyone really needs to understand. And we see like Peloton, I just pulled up this example because I think it was it's kind of obvious and most people know it, but you know, they're in the red. They did such a great job of growing and got all these new customers, but they weren't doing things to be able to be sustaining this growth and so now they're having problems and I think they'll make it because everybody loves them but you know they got some stuff to figure out so so how can you make a difference in this and I would just encourage you to think about what are you being asked to report on in your day-to-day -day? what are what's your vernacular what are you talking about and is it really rolling up to sustainable growth so for me, if someone's asking me about leads, 
you know, I'm trying to change that conversation to the three Bs and what's the volume, what's the velocity, what's the conversion rates. I'm talking about customer acquisition costs and the return on investment of my programs versus what's my cost per lead. And just think again, like, what are you being asked about every single weekday? What words are you using and how can you start changing that conversation in your own world? And I think you'll start to see a big shift even in how people think about you, how they, when, you know, what they're coming to you with and what you're being asked to do. So again, happy to talk about this stuff in much more detail. Um, and I'll, I'll just leave it here for a couple more of my favorite memes. Um, all right, so going into that, and John touched on this a little bit too, but the product market fit and your ICP fit. How many times have you interviewed at a company or read a press release or something where it's like, oh, the total addressable market is 10 bazillion trillion dollars and there's so much potential and only 4% of the whole market has been tapped into yet, and so we can grow this much, and this is what we have you know, going for us, right? And you're like, okay, but a big group of those people aren't in market. They don't know they have a problem, they could care less, and they're not gonna do anything. You know, and then when you start looking at who is in market, who's really a good fit for your solution? Because maybe, you're just really a complex, you can handle complex, complexity and that's your thing in a really small company, it's just, it's not a good fit or vice versa, right? So you really need to start narrowing it down to where should you be spending your dollars and your time and that's using intent data, who's in market and who's a good fit and then, okay, now who do we have the right to win? Let's start marketing to them and then, once they're an account, how do we get growth out of them, retain them, upsell them, and build upon what we've already started versus the 10 bazillion trillion other accounts out there that you're gonna burn tons of money trying to go after. So these are the things that I was pretty much just talking about, but I will say this too, is I don't think companies um, do this enough, like reevaluate, and especially when there's a pivot in what's going on in the world, you should definitely reevaluate, but I would recommend you do it quarterly. So keep an eye on that. Um, sorry, my clock's not working. I'm gonna have to go faster. So a couple examples, I, you can read these, but I'll just say this is, even think about like Zoom when COVID hit, they actually expanded their ICP fit into families and schools and then I think about other companies I've worked for, like MindTickle, which is enablement, and they were talking about this whole big concept of readiness, but I think, you know, now starting to hone in on this, like, efficiency piece and thinking about which industries and companies want to be the most efficient because that's probably their sweet spot and where they're going to get the most immediate growth. So, experiences. Again, this is, like, my second favorite to people piece of this puzzle. And I think it's the one that gets messed up the most frequently. I've seen it, I, I've barely seen any companies that do this really well, to be honest. So I'll start backwards. It's five times more expensive to acquire a new customer than retain one. Yet we spend 
so much time and money and effort trying to get new ones more than, I mean, I think it, the pivot's happening and starting to shift the pendulum a little bit, but still it's lopsided, right, of how much we do to try to get new accounts versus keep the ones we have and grow them. So if you start thinking about the customer being in the middle, I'm gonna just flash my eye chart. Again, happy to share this later, but I like to see this get mapped out every single stage throughout the entire customer journey with every department head. Everyone should be bought into, here's the touch points, here's the pain that they have at the stage, here's how they probably feel coming into it, here's how we want them to feel after, and this is how we're gonna help them. And it, I have like a whole content matrix that goes behind all of this and the experiences that you wanna create. And then map that to the key performance indicators, KPIs, and agree on it. So the thing I would just take away from this is just you can think about this without this chart right now. Are there big gaps in handoffs? So. When somebody becomes an account, for example, I think that's a very pivotal moment because not only usually does the team that sold the account is not usually the team that's using the technology, right? And then you've got sales and customer success and new people who didn't really probably have a say in which technology was getting bought too much, having to implement it. What can you do to make that onboarding experience better? And I'm seeing things all the way from bringing customer success in earlier, having sales maintain relationships with the accounts throughout, marketing welcome kits, sending people cookies, swag, but then like welcome videos, how-to videos, just there's so much you can do just in that one spot that would make a better experience. And this is you know one example of, of hundreds I can think of that are places where things break down. So look at where your biggest gaps are and how could you make a difference. And the other thing I'll just say is reducing friction. I, forms, I mean, still, I would say 90% of the website I go on have forms. Like so many forms. If you're using intent data, do you really need a form? Do you really need it? Because there's so much friction with that. So just look at how can you reduce friction in the experience? How can you make things better? every step of the way for an account. Dan, I know you weren't here when Gartner did this, but <laughs> Gartner, um, and, but I'll just say I've seen this 80% of the interactions, like people don't wanna talk to sales until much later in their journey. They can do the research on their own. So this changes how people are buying. So I would just, again, go back to the drawing board Really understand your audience. Ask them, how did they hear about you? Find the things you don't need to be doing anymore. Like, people are talking to their peers. They're involved in online communities. They're consuming tons of content on LinkedIn, paid and unpaid. There's small events happening all over the place where, again, people are getting together and talking, coming to your website. We were finding that 60% of our inbound, our organic inbound was going to a product tour before they filled out a form. People want to consume and understand what your product does before they wanna to talk to a salesperson. So think again about where are you spending your money and, and how easy are you making this for them. 
and then you know the list goes on and on. So do you need to be spending all that money on PPC? Could you do a better job with SEO? There's, there's lots of different ways to think about this, but look at your business and figure out you know, what, what, what you can eliminate and what you should be doing. And then tech, again, I think we all kind of know this, but when's the last time you actually looked at every single piece of tech in your tech stack and said, do I still need this? Are we still using it? Or did they just acquire another company and bring in this other feature? And can, can I consolidate and just get more things with this one piece of tech than not use all these other pieces of tech? And I mean, you know, I get it. It's hard. You get people enabled on things and they're using it and if it's working. But um, I would look for, for those different places to try to consolidate. And... Um, I'll use this example. I love chatbots, okay? And I know there's a couple friends in here um, from companies at chatbots, and I have generated millions of dollars from chatbots. But you have to be dedicated to make it work. And I'm seeing um, the teams that just set it and forget it. It's creating more friction. It's getting X'd out of, you know, it's, it's not helping. And then I'm seeing the teams that are dedicated to it. And they, maybe they're switching over a BDR role to be a chatbot you know, person. And they're, you know, they're swooping in and having a conversation with an account when they're on your website. That's very valuable, right? So instead of trying to like call someone and get them to talk to you, they're already there. Have someone talk with them. So just again, think about like, are you using your tech the most efficiently that you can? And are there things you could do better before you just get rid of it? So I'll leave it with this. Here's my final seven tips for efficient growth. Keep your people happy. Hire the best people you can and, and keep them happy. Enable them to do good work. And really think about that entire go-to-market strategy and every team and how they need to be enabled to work together, not just learn this persona, but how does that work across all the teams? And then reporting, how does that roll up to the bigger picture? Fit, again, reevaluate this often. There, there's probably a lot of um, new information coming in right now that might change who you want to be targeting. Um, experiences. People buy from people that they like and trust. The best experiences usually win. So again, if there's one thing that I would take the time to really make sure you're looking at right now, I think this is where the biggest gaps usually are. And then channels are probably changing too, and your tech stack, opt optimize it. And that's it. So, and I think I might be at time, but, oh, I am. Um, can I, do I have time for questions? Is it okay or? Questions? Okay, as far as chatbots go, trying to get the AI to work the right way can be a big barrier. Do you recommend having like your BDR team just man it at first in order to kind of figure out what the regular questions people are asking or what, what is your best approach for that? I mean, there's playbooks out there that I think are helpful in this, but I usually try to get the flows working first and, and yes, making sure that um, the intent data is coming in. So 
this is why I kind of like having BDR do it is they should be trained and understand the personas. At a high level, they should understand the messaging. And then hopefully they're trained on the intent and data and they should be able to pretty much immediately see this is what this account has been looking for, if they've identified who the person is, what they've already engaged with. And so I think it's really important to get the basics in place before you start putting a person on top of it. And, and then, you know, I'm a big fan of like inspect what you expect and every week sit down, review it, talk to the team that's doing it. What are the challenges they're having? Back to that enablement piece, like what do they need to be more successful? Look at how it's going and make adjustments that way. So, but I would get the core pieces in place first. Any other questions? So I loved, the, I loved your comment about, do you really need a form on your website? Because this is something I'm always asking. So how do you get over the mindset of, we need to be showing the numbers of MQLs from a strategic level so that you can unleash that content and make it more widely available? Are you, are you using intent data? So that's the first piece. With the intent data, you're able to see who's doing what and assign points to that. Basically like your old, you know, the old like funnel model. Um, well, different vendors do different ways, but you can give scores, you can see stages, you can see what they've engaged with. So that's how I get around it. And that becomes way more valuable than, I mean, if you fill out a form, it doesn't mean that you want to talk to somebody. You're only doing it because you had to to get the piece of content you wanted. So if you back out to creating a great experience, it's just not one. And then if someone's following up with you saying, oh, you filled out this form for this piece, it's like, that's what I was afraid of. This almost going to come, right? So I think the bigger picture is, again, getting aligned on what's the experience you want to create and understanding when are accounts really ready to talk and what do you need to do to build up to that point? It's, it's a much bigger mind shift than just the eliminating the form piece. Yeah, I'm happy. To, I, I could talk to you for hours about this, so happy to talk more about it. Okay. <laughs> One more. First of all, that was awesome, and I appreciate that you started with people. That's really important, um, the culture piece. But you had talked about um, retention being the new acquisition, and I couldn't agree more. I I think it's so tied to the ICP and to the sales process. What I've found is that if you're selling to your best fit customers, they're going to have a higher propensity to stay. And I think a lot of companies to your, you know, to your point, I thought that was brilliant. It's like, do you really have an ICP or is it just like anybody who's willing to buy? And that's where I think you come up with a lot of the retention issues because they, they weren't a good fit to begin with. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to comment on that, on that piece. No, I appreciate that. And I've been using the phrase too of like, it's finding the right product market fit for your employees as well as your product, right? And I am looking at, is this culture going to work with their personality and all of, all of that? It's essential. So. so I absolutely loved Lisa's P-E-R-F-E-C-T framework that she shared during this session. And you know, we always try to encourage our speakers to share practical action items in their prezos that our audience can implement as soon as they get back to their office after the event. And Lisa definitely delivered. 
Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you guys, there are plenty more action items and best practices to look forward to at the 2023 B2B Marketing Exchange in Scottsdale, of course. The event is creeping up quickly, so be sure to snag your ticket as soon as possible. Register for B2BMX and check out our ever-growing agenda now. We really hope to see you there next month. Thank you all so much for listening today. Of course, don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing to the podcast on your player of choice. And finally, make sure to connect with us on Twitter and LinkedIn to share your feedback and just let us know who you want to hear from. Have a great rest of your week, folks. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. 